When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we're all realizing that the quality of our air, and particularly the quality of our indoor air, is really darn important. I'm so excited to tell you about Puro Air because in 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called a HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. I keep my Puro Air running upstairs where the bedrooms are all night. I love that it's quiet. Cleaner air just hits different, doesn't it? Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, getpuroair.com. Well, hello there and welcome back. My name is Stephanie Safarian and you are listening to episode 156 of the Sustainable Minimalist podcast. On today's show, we are exploring the space between environmental advocacy and despair as we define those uncomfortable and prevailing feelings associated with caring about the planet in a culture that just isn't doing enough to curb climate change. Eco-madness is that feeling I often feel, and perhaps you feel too, when an environmental dilemma hits you with a tornado of confusion, hopelessness, anger, and frustration all at once simply because there is no perfect answer. Now, here's a real-life example that I experienced just yesterday. A few months back, a friend had dropped off bags of clothing for my oldest daughter, which I, of course, was very excited about. My daughter at the time was a bit too small for the clothes, so I packed them away, and just yesterday I pulled them out. As I was looking through the bags, I noticed that there was an awful lot of synthetic items. Think yoga pants for kids. And so while I was thrilled and fortunate to receive these clothes, I also wondered what those synthetic items would do when I washed them. And so now all of a sudden, I'm worrying about microfibers and microplastics in the ocean. And then, of course, my mind goes to the immense plastic problem and how because it's so big, there's nothing I can realistically do on my own in my own house to curb this problem, and which then that thought then ushered in the feelings of frustration and anger and ultimately hopelessness. My guest this week is Cheryl Luchin. Cheryl is the author of Love Earth Now, a collection of essays that delve into what she calls eco-madness. My chat with Cheryl today is a bit different than what we usually do on this podcast because today is less about concrete tips and more about finding ways to survive and thrive despite experiencing difficult emotions and understanding difficult truths. Now, really quick before we get into today's interview, a quick note that this week's episode is sponsored by last week's guest, Kind Laundry. Did you know that traditional laundry detergents, like the ones that come in big plastic jugs, contain up to 20 toxic ingredients? Kind Laundry offers a zero-waste alternative that's better for the planet and better for your family. Kind Laundry sheets are free of petroleum, optical brighteners, phthalates, and more, and as a mother who does laundry every single day, I appreciate that unlike other zero-waste detergents, their sheets dissolve immediately in all water temperatures. Head over to kindlaundry.com and enter code MINIMAL at checkout 
for 10% off your first order. Cheryl, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to discuss eco-madness and all the emotions that go along with it. How are you doing today? Well, today's a pretty good day. Thank you very much for asking. Well, you wrote an amazing book that resonated with me on so many levels called Love Earth Now. And so we're going to get into your book and we're going to get into why you felt compelled to write it. But before we do that, tell my listeners who you are and how you found yourself interested in the environment. Well, it's something that's always been on my mind and in my heart, I suppose, although I've taken a rather twisted path to get where I am today. I've I've worn a lot of hats in my nearly six decades on this planet. I I started out as a, a, an environmental geologist, and then I spent some years as an environmental law attorney. I've done some consulting on uh, renewable energy projects. I owned a small shop for a while. And most of all, I'm a mother. And really becoming a mother cemented my commitment to discovering what I can do for this planet because, you know, I hope that there's going to be frogs and and beautiful sunrises for my children and grandchildren, great grandchildren. My own journey sounds very similar to yours. I had always considered myself a little bit better of a steward of the planet than most, but it wasn't, you know, a big part of my life until I had an infant and I started perking up every time there was a piece on the news about climate change or, you know, the next 50 years, what Earth might look like. So something about becoming a mother for me to really set my own eco-anxiety into high gear. And I've done an episode on eco-anxiety before. Listeners, by the way, that was episode 87, I believe, if you missed it. But eco-anxiety is defined by the American Psychiatric Association as, quote, a chronic fear of environmental doom. Eco-madness, as you describe it, is quite different than eco-anxiety. So we'll start there. What is eco-madness to you and how does it manifest in your own life? Well, eco-madness is something that I made up for one thing. It's not an official diagnosis, except that I think it's pretty apt for me. (laughs) The madness is more of an immediate response, kind of a knee-jerk reaction to hearing the terrible news of the day for the planet, for life on Earth as we know it. Whereas a chronic fear to me sounds more like a a long term condition. This is for me is uh, that moment of absolute panic when I hear something that I I feel that there's absolutely nothing I can do about, and yet I care so much. And it's just that that juxtaposition of being in this place of wanting to do, wanting to respond, and not having any idea how or much less if there's anything that I could do that would make a difference. I I need to know, I need to believe that the little things that I do every day from picking up trash or buying less will add up to something that makes a difference in order for me to get out of bed in the morning. And, and those moments of madness make me wonder. It sounds to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but eco-madness in your life is almost about struggling with a feeling of hopelessness? I would say a feeling of hopelessness on steroids. 
<laughs> oh, well, that must be lovely. <laughs> we've passed, um, we've come a long way since, you know, the, the general uh, feeling of hopelessness. And now it's a sheer panic. It's like, I feel hopeless. And it's exacerbated by this feeling that there's nothing I can do about it, even though in my better moments, I know that there is. And I, I do believe that what we do matters. I do believe that every small gesture we make is a demonstration of our hope and our caring and, and that these add up. But it's those moments of madness when I, I'm not so sure. Mm. For me, as somebody who's started this podcast about giving others tips and tricks on living a simpler and more eco-friendly existence, it personally is really difficult to know cognitively, know the facts that 70 companies are responsible for the vast majority of emissions that are put into our atmosphere. So it's like, okay, I can bring my bags to the supermarket and I can brew my own coffee and never order takeout and do this, that, and the other thing. But that's such a small blip when you consider the scope of the problem. And so that's something that I struggle with all the time. But I'd love to know if you could just paint us a picture of a recent bout. I don't know if bout's the right word, but a recent experience you've had with eco-madness in your own life. Well, that's that's what my book really is about. It's a collection of my own stories and struggles to deal with information like you've just provided us that's disturbing and and disappointing and frustrating. And so in any given chapter, I might be dealing with, you know, uh, worrying about landfill emissions and end up at the park and singing with some Canadian geese. So you never know <laughs> where it's going to take you. But I do find that my time in nature is truly essential for my emotional and spiritual well-being because that's where I get a break from, well, the internet, for one thing. That's that's pretty clear. But also, if I'm really allowing myself to be um, in a place of mindfulness in nature, then I can also be free of my own rants and raves, that my internal dialogue that keeps me feeling stuck and hopeless and small. So let me ask you about that, because your book is less about tips and tricks on being more eco-friendly and more about how you live day to day with these oversized concerns. And you said something in the book that when I read the sentence, I was just knocked over cold. You said that conventional eco-friendly behaviors, like the ones I talk about all every week on this show, is like putting band-aids on gushing head wounds. And that is just so true. It's such a perfect metaphor. So what do you say to listeners listening right now who feel like you often do, which is that climate change is so insurmountable that all these tips and tricks, they aren't enough. They're not even hitting anywhere close to the, the problem? Well, I wouldn't discount what you do. I think there's room for all of us and everything we are sharing right now is so important and is going to touch someone where they need it. And I rely on this podcast and writers like you to give me some ideas about what I can be doing. So 
I applaud you, first of all, for giving us that. My contribution, I feel, is, yes, how do we live on a day-to-day basis? How do we find for ourselves how to live on a day-to-day basis when we don't know the tips or tricks and when we don't know what the best solution is or what I can do, but I know how to take care of myself. I know how to take care of my emotional and spiritual well-being. I've practiced and explored with different technologies and, and meditations and movements and writing. And and it's important to find what works for you and keeps you feeling on the, uh, at least sometimes on the hopeful side of the ledger and also allowing ourselves to do what we need to do to to re- to react to the hurt and the hopelessness, whether that means uh, screaming or crying into a pillow, pounding the pavement, ranting at the TV. <laughs> and give that a cutoff time, though, because I know that it's easy to get stuck there. I'll say, you know, I've got until noon, and I'm just going to sit here and be furious, and then I'm going to hit my yoga mat. Or then I'm going to go out and pull weeds because pulling weeds is so therapeutic. (laughs) It just feels like pulling out everything you don't, ripping it out of the ground. I just, I highly recommend that. And, you know, finding the music, the meditations, the walking, you know, funny cat, whatever it, it is that restores you and brings you back to a place of, of yourself. Because I believe that we are all here on purpose, that we came here with special and unique abilities and gifts, and we're here to employ them. And if these things that are triggering us are so hurtful and so upsetting, that's what we're here to respond to with these gifts and abilities that we have. And that's why I shy away from prescribing something that everyone should do. The top 10 list, absolutely everyone should be doing those things. That not only is too limiting, I mean, we all have imaginations that could go beyond a top 10 list. And it also disregards those unique abilities, gifts, and purpose for why each of us are here. There's 7 billion of us on the planet. I remind myself that on a daily basis, even though... It's easy to despair. Oh, we're overpopulating the planet. I remind myself there's 7 billion of us here with our own unique abilities, gifts, purpose. And so for those things that I just have no wherewithal to respond or to fix, I entrust and I turn those things over to the other 7 billion people whose call to action I pray it is to respond to those things that I cannot. You gave an awful lot of, I would say maybe coping mechanisms. I'm not sure if that's the right term, but things you do when you (laughs) feel as though you need to flip the switch, right? Change your thought patterns or change your mental state. I, I loved weeding. You mentioned yoga. You said going into nature. Are there any other activities that you found just seem to work for you? Yes, I have I have a variety of activities. I consider meditation. <laughs> Let's say that. So what do you what what tips and tricks <laughs> do you have for people who don't have that type of meditative practice who would say maybe perhaps that they've tried before, they've tried breathing practices before and it's just not a strategy that works for them. Do you have any suggestions? I get that. I mean, 
on any given day, the thought of just sitting down in stillness for 15, 20 minutes can just do me in. It just feels so uh, unproductive when I feel like I need to be doing something. I need to be moving. I need to be burning up energy and anger instead of just sitting in quiet, which is a state that I it feels unattainable when I'm really in those moments of eco-madness. I want to go running down the street. And sometimes I do. And I suggest looking for those practices or those activities that allow you to get out of thinking, whatever it is. It doesn't have to be sitting still. There could be a walking meditation. It could be dancing, crank up music that you love to dance to because, you know, I don't know about you, but I, I when I'm dancing, I'm not thinking about grocery lists, much less what I'm going to do about climate crises. And creating art is another activity that if I really just sit down with my pile of papers and glues and paints, I, I'm not thinking about the climate crisis. And also, not only are those moments of stillness or not, you know freedom of thought uh, give me a break from all of the ranting and raving, but also it's often in those moments when I'm not thinking about earth or climate or what are my children going to be doing that I get great ideas about something I can do. Because great ideas they need some space. And when my brain is all full of my own thoughts and rethinking the thoughts that I thought yesterday and the day before that, there's no space for those great ideas that come in often in that small, still voice. Hmm. I would say that I am probably one of those people that breathing doesn't necessarily work for. Uh, it works when this is so bad, but breathing and meditating work well for me when life is good. But when life is bad or when I'm really agitated, I almost feel as though breathing makes me more agitated. So I think f finding that self-care that works is a personal thing. For me, running really hard and really fast does much more for my uh, cynical, pessimistic, bad mood than meditating would. So for any listeners listening who maybe are like me and, you know, the breathing, the sitting in quiet doesn't work, or maybe they don't even have the quiet to do it. Maybe they have young kids. Whatever works for you is the perfect strategy. Now, I have to ask you about your family. Do they share your bouts of eco-madness? Do they share your environmental ideals? Do they think you're a little bit batty? <laughs> Where do they fall? Pretty much all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my, my children are um, late teens, early 20s. They have their own uh, agendas for what they're up to right now, as it should be. They certainly care about the planet. They certainly care about my concerns. And they really rather turn that all over to me. I think I am the designated driver in this family for for worrying about the planet. And they have their own worries and concerns. And so we each have our part. They do think I'm a little batty, but they've just grown up with that. And so I guess they've come to accept it. I would love to pivot and discuss your book. Your book, Love Earth Now, does make clear, I think, or it made clear to me at least, that eco-friendly living in 2020 
it demands an awful lot. It demands time in terms of researching and advocating and writing letters. It also requires some cynicism, I would say. But what else, in your opinion, does it take to consider yourself an environmentalist in 2020? For me, what it means to be, and I don't even know that I need to use the term environmentalist. Sometimes I think that word is fraught with um, with old habits and associations. I would say to be an earth citizen or steward, whatever uh, terminology works for you, I believe it's about setting the intention most, most and foremost. I'm going to do the best that I can do. And that's it. Because as I've talked about earlier, you know, fretting about things I can't do, that doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't address my mental well-being or help anyone else's. So setting the intention, I'm going to do the best that I can and follow through on that and let the rest go. Because honestly, there's only so much that we can do. As you mentioned, those companies, yes, we can, if you're a shareholder, you can speak up, you can send them emails, but there's only so much that we can do given the options we've been given. I mean, say you want to be more environmentally friendly and you buy organic cotton clothing, that's great. And know that making organic cotton requires almost twice as much water as conventionals. As freshwater supplies become more precious, that adds up to big impacts. On the other hand, there's the, all of the pesticide and herbicides that go into the, the, the ground and the water by making the conventional cotton. So there's no perfect answers. And I know losing sleep over making these decisions is not healthy or helpful. So for me, it comes back to the intention, honoring my intentions and letting the rest go because it's essential for my own emotional and mental well-being. Hmm. What I love about your response there is that you don't offer a one-size-fits-all. You must buy cotton t-shirts or what you know, whatever it may be. A lot of people like to say, this is what needs to be done if you consider yourself eco-friendly or an environmentalist or sustainable or whatever it is. But the problem is generally so much more complex than a simple black and white answer. And you're right. What it comes down to at the end of the day is just each of us doing the best we can do, not being perfect, not being literally the best, but just the best we can do in the season of life we're in and with the resources we have. Absolutely. I say we do the best with what we've got, considering the time, the talent, the energy, the money, the resources that we have. That's what we've been given in this life. And that's what we have to work with. Talk to me about Love Earth Now. Why did you feel compelled to write this book? I never sat down to write a book. Let me tell you, <laughs> I sat down to write as a form of my own therapy, talking about those therapies that get you through the day. Writing was my therapy and both Right, started out writing the frustrations and then ultimately began writing up nature where I came to some more interesting conclusions than I would have if I'd just been sitting in my house at the kitchen table with a glass of wine. <laughs> Not that I haven't tried that too, 
But I didn't set out to write a book. It it became uh, a series of essays. I had a couple published separately, as a matter of fact. I went to a writing conference that I thought was going to be about writing. And it ended up being mostly about meeting agents and publishers. I talked to a couple of agents and publishers about what I was writing, and they didn't get it, didn't care. And at the end of the day, I almost walked out of the building, said, I'm done with this. But I talked to one more person who said, send me something. And so it was really because of Brenda Knight at Mango Publishing that I have a book. Otherwise, it would have continued as a series of essays. Shout out to Mango. Mango will be publishing my book in January, and it has been the best experience I've had professionally. So thank you to them. Did writing this book, did the process of writing the book serve as a coping skill for your eco-madness? Absolutely. I can't tell you the realizations that came out of this book, out of the process of writing this book that I would never have reached otherwise. And so I am grateful for the process. And I that's why another reason why I encourage everyone to find what therapy works for you. Again, no one size fits all. You do you. And, and if you're not certain, play with some things. Being playful is one of the best therapies around. Did you have an excerpt from the book that you would like to share? Everything we do matters. All that is born of our love, our hope, our caring, our intuition, our faith, our imagination, and plain old wishing for something better matters to earth, to our beloveds, to our communities, to nature, and to our own hearts, like glazed donuts matter to Homer Simpson. Even if, like Trevor, the young humanitarian in the movie Pay It Forward, we have no clue how or when or to how many our contributions matter. Surely your recipe, your how-to manual, or divine intuition to navigate the pitfalls of this earth-loving differs from mine. Surely we have different roadblocks to hurdle. However we navigate the minefields, I honor the place where each of us stands for it is holy ground. I commend us for caring, for crying, for exploring, for showing up right where we are, great earth-loving souls that we are. We came here to play, full out, with everything on the line. Cheryl, where can listeners find your book, Love Earth Now? Well, it's online. <laughs> Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the usual e-tailers. There's also IndieBound.org. I don't know if you're familiar, but it's a great way to support independently owned bookstores. And I encourage readers to support our locally owned bookstores as much as we can. It you know, helps build more resilient communities, keeps money in our communities. And heaven knows Jeff Bezos doesn't need the cash. <laughs> no, he doesn't. I will absolutely link to your book on IndieBound.com in the show notes. But I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. What I love about this conversation is I know just as we're recording it that I'm going to get an awful lot of emails from listeners saying they loved how relatable it was. So thank you so much for your honesty and thank you so much for putting your passion for the environment out into the world. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. I so hope you enjoyed that interview with Cheryl Luchin, author of Love Earth Now. I have linked to her and her book in this week's show notes, which you can find at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 156. 
On next week's show, we are discussing all things related to feng shui, and more specifically, how the ancient art of balance has the power to amplify minimalist principles in your home. I will see you then. Happy New Year, and take care.